Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Tonight's sermon will come from 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 29. Verses 1 through 29. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, Why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat it from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. 
He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hands on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Thus says the reading of God's holy word. Will you bow with me in prayer before we begin? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reveals about yourself and what it reveals to us about ourselves, Lord. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts tonight to convict us of sin and to encourage us to walk in a manner worthy of knowing Christ. And we pray, Lord, that as a result, we may become more holy and sanctified, that our lives would give you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Samuel 13 is a lesson in the doctrine of human depravity. It teaches us just how morally corrupt and w- wicked human beings really are apart from God's grace. And this point is driven home for us in that we learn this most difficult of lessons from none other than the family of David, Israel's greatest king. David, you see, was handpicked by God himself to be king. And God himself referred to David as a man after his own heart. In fact, there are very few other people in the Bible that are spoken as highly of as King David. So it's safe to say that this man David was the very best of humanity. And yet we see how sin still runs rampant even in his own household, apart from God's intervening grace. Now, in order to explain how we got here, we need to rewind a little bit in David's story and back up to chapter 7, where God made his covenant with David and blessed him, saying, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, And I will establish his kingdom, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Those were God's word to his servant, David. Now, in light of this most beautiful and glorious of promises, it's really even more difficult to make sense of what we read about here in chapter 13. Here... We read, about God, uh, we read about David's offspring, his own flesh and blood, 
committing the most heinous acts of betrayal, rape, incest, and murder. Which leaves us wondering, what in the world happened to God's promise? Didn't God just promise to David six chapters ago that his house would be blessed? How are we to make sense of this? Well, we find the beginning of our answer in chapter 11, verse 1, where we read, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and all of Israel out to war. But David remained in Jerusalem. That verse is really interesting because it implies that as king of Israel, it was David's duty to go fight with the army. But instead, David shirked his responsibilities and stayed at home while his servants did all the work. We're not explicitly told why David did what he did, but it would seem that the only reasonable explanation is that he grew complacent. God had already promised that his throne would be established forever. So it would seem that David here is presuming on the riches of God's kindness. After all, why should he go out to battle when his future has already been set? As a result, David became lazy and entitled. So much so that when he saw a naked Bathsheba bathing on her roof, he had the audacity to rape her, then murder her husband in order to cover up his sin. David's sin was the ultimate act of betrayal. He betrayed the God whom he served, and he betrayed his servants, the very people that it was his solemn duty to protect. And even though David repented for his sin and was ultimately forgiven by God, God still saw fit that his servant David should be punished for his unfaithfulness. So in chapter 12, verse 10 and following, God spoke to David through Nathan the prophet, saying, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. This curse then in chapter 12 explains the sinful behavior of David's family in chapter 13. As a consequence for David's sin, God has seen fit to withdraw his grace from David's household. As a result, his sinful behavior has now carried over into the lives of his children. The betrayal, rape, and murder that David committed is now what characterizes his own household. And his own sons, who should have been a blessing to him as a father, have now become a curse instead. And David's example teaches us a very important lesson about God's forgiveness. Just because God has forgiven us for our sin like he did David doesn't mean 
that we won't have to face the consequences for our sinful behavior. Whether we are forgiven or not, there will always be consequences for sin. There will always be consequences for sin. David's sin was not an isolated matter. Oftentimes, we tend to think to ourselves, why shouldn't I do this or that if it's not hurting anyone else? But that kind of thinking is a lie. Our sin always affects more than just ourselves. More often than not, it affects the very people we love. And our chapter tonight makes that very point. David's sin impacted more than just himself. It had an impact on his kids. Because of David's grotesque sin, his children, because of David's grotesque sin, he lost all credibility as a moral figure. As a result, he failed to be the moral example and influence that his children needed him to be. And on the contrary, David's example would influence his kids for the worse, which is what we see in this chapter. Verse 1 begins with mentioning Absalom, which tells us that more than anyone else, this is really a story about him. Chapter 13 functions as a prologue or a kind of backstory that explains why Absalom eventually betrays his father and tries to take over the kingdom. And the story about Absalom, David's son, begins by telling us that he had a beautiful sister named Tamar. In the same verse, we're also introduced to Absalom's and Tamar's half-brother, Amnon, who we are told in verse 1 loved Tamar. Verse 2 then goes on to explain that he loved her so much that he made himself ill because of her. For she was a virgin, it says, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, that little explanation in verse 2 tells us an awful lot about what kind of love this actually was. In fact, it wasn't love at all at least according to any biblical understanding of that word. One helpful commentator explains, saying, and I quote, the ingredients of a genuine love are altogether lacking here. There is no self-giving commitment, no seeking of the other's highest good, no sensitive devotion, not even a hint of romance. There is only a naked physical lust and an utterly self-centered disregard for Tamar's personal integrity, welfare, and blessedness. Amnon is consumed, not by what he could do for her, but by what he desperately wanted to do to her. End quote. You see, genuine love is rooted in a commitment that seeks the highest welfare of the other person. 
But that was not what Amnon was after. Amnon was not after love. Amnon was after his own sexual gratification without any regard for Tamar's well-being. And it was his inability to act on his sinful lust that tormented him. Now, it needs to be noted here that a sexual relationship between brothers and sisters, and even half-brothers and half-sisters, is forbidden in God's law. This is made clear in places like Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 20, Deuteronomy 27. But the immorality of the thing was probably not what prevented Amnon from acting on his desire. More than likely, it was because the daughters of the king were well looked after, and he was not clever enough to devise a scheme in which he could get close enough to her. And even if he could get close, he knew that he could probably never persuade her to partake in his immorality. Well, unfortunately, Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, who was more clever than he was. In verse 3, Jonadab is described as a very crafty man. And one day, he helped Amnon devise a scheme that would allow him to get close enough to Tamar so that he could finally act on his sinful lust. But just as Amnon does not really love Tamar, Jonadab is no real friend to Amnon. Because a true friend in this situation would have discouraged Amnon from acting on his lust. A true friend would have reminded Amnon of God's word and would have prayed for and with Amnon that he might escape, escape the deadly grip which sin had on him. That's what a true friend does in a situation like that. And unfortunately for us, this idea of friendship is lost in today's society just as much as it was on Jonadab. Our own Walt Mueller, in his latest CPYU newsletter to parents, makes the following comment about a growing trend among young people in today's culture. He says, In today's world, it is seen as virtuous if you allow and even encourage your friends to choose to do what seems write to them. Even if I believe that your choice is dangerous or immoral, who am I to intervene with a warning? It is up to you to do what seems right to you. That's the trend going on in today's world. And oh, how right the Bible is when it says that there is nothing new under the sun. Today's version of morality is no different than it was back in the times of Jonadab. And the wisdom that humanity offers today is just as flawed and harmful as it was back then. Because as we will eventually see, Jonadab's advice may get Amnon what he wants in the short term, but it ultimately leads to Amnon's eventual demise. Now, in order to carry out Jonadab's plan, Amnon first had to lie to his father, the king, because apparently only the king had the authority to tell one of his virgin daughters to do the sort of thing that he was requesting. 
So pretending to be sick, Amnon asked David if Tamar could come cook for him. Now David is a minor character in this story, but nevertheless, he makes two really foolish mistakes. And this being the first of them. As a king and as a father, David should have had more wisdom and insight than what he displayed here. Unable to see past Amnon's scheme, David complied with his request and directed Tamar to attend to the needs of her half-brother. And again, both as a king and as a father, it was David's responsibility to protect his children, especially one of his precious daughters. Unfortunately, he failed miserably, and so he sent his own beautiful and innocent daughter into the lion's den. According to another commentator, Tamar in this passage fully imbibes not only the letter but also the spirit of godly femininity. It is women like Tamar, this commentator says, who are the very fabric of godly society. Women like her in the church and girls growing up in her godly spirit, cultivating beauty, sexual purity, devotion to God, and a heart of good works and compassion are beyond price in their spiritual value, end quote. Therefore, every effort should have been made on David's part to not put her in such a situation in which an attack like this was even possible. We are to guard our young women. We are to encourage and nurture them in uh, their good works and compassion and purity not to put them in compromising situations where something may or may not happen to them. That's what wisdom calls for. But David, once again, he failed miserably and put her in a situation that was dangerous. And for his failure as a king and as as a father... Unfortunately, it was Tamar who had the most terrible price to pay. The attack on her was a most heinous act of betrayal on the part of two men who should have had her best interest at heart. Let's notice, first of all, how it happened. Like most sin, it happened in secret, behind closed doors. Amnon had ordered everyone to leave the room, so that he could act on his sinful inclinations. Next, he pleads with Tamar to go along with his immorality, saying, come, lie with me, my sister. But Tamar, being the godly woman that she is, stands fast in her integrity and pleads with her brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. And again, perhaps those words would have carried more weight if her own father and the very king of Israel was not guilty of the same thing. Tamar, however, does not give up. She tries to warn Amnon, telling him how such a sinful act would harm both of them. She says, where could I go that I would carry my shame and it's for you? You would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. And when that failed to work, 
She tried to lie her way out of the situation by seeking to convince Amnon that if he would only ask the king for her hand in marriage, surely her ki- ki- the king of her father would not withhold her from him. It was a desperate lie, but it was all that she had. Sadly, Amnon was beyond reason at this point. So we're told, being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And with those words, any possible doubt about Tamar's role in this assault is removed. The word violated here is a word that speaks of humiliation, oppression, and subjugation. It refers to Amnon's physical overpowering of Tamar against her will. Next, the narrative goes on to explain to us how Amnon responded to his sin in verse 15. Verse 15 says, Amnon now hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And while this may sound strange at first, it's really, it's really not. No one likes to own up to their own sin. And the same is no less true for Amnon, the woman who was once just a short while ago the object of his desire is now to him a bitter reminder of his heinous crime. She's a reminder of how hard and grotesque a man he really is. And rather than own up to what he'd done, he tries to sweep it under the rug by treating his half-sister even more horribly by having her thrown out on the street. Which, again, was another violation of God's law. Because in those days, if a man seduced or raped a woman, he was actually obligated to marry her due to the fact that she would not be desirable for marriage by anyone else. And this is why Tamar pleads with Amnon to do the right thing by letting her stay. But Amnon is too much of a coward for that. So he refuses and has his servant throw her out. As for Tamar, she flees to her brother Absalom, but only after putting ashes on her head and tearing her robe, the robe that signified her purity, in pieces both of which were expressions of grief and and humiliation in those days. And as if the situation couldn't be any more sad, it's made even worse when we read about David, her father's reaction to the news of what happened. All we are told is that when David heard news of it, he was very angry. Now, What's surprising about that statement is not that David was angry, but that that's all he did. Nowhere is there mention here of David taking action to discipline his son. This would be his second big mistake. By law, David was obligated to cut Amnon off from the people of Israel, which would mean that Amnon would no longer be the next in line for king. That's what divine law necessitated. 
But instead of doing the right thing, David does nothing except brew in his anger. It doesn't even mention the fact that he comforted Tamar because he didn't. There are only, and there are only two possible explanations for David's actions here. The first, according to one commentator, is that David was greatly implicated by his own sins of this very nature, too much so that he was unable to take a stand against, against them on the part of his children. David is a man who is morally bankrupt. As a result, he has no leg to stand on from which to punish or discipline his son. The second explanation for David's behavior comes from an ESV footnote that says some manuscripts, including the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, add, but he, David, would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him since he was his firstborn. Now, if that's true, it would seem to say that David cared more about protecting the heir to his throne than he did about administering justice on behalf of his daughter. Regardless of which explanation is right, perhaps they both are, David's lack of action would eventually play itself out with severe consequences. Because as I mentioned before, this is really a story about Absalom. It serves as a prologue that explains Absalom's hatred towards his father and why he would eventually lead the country into a civil war. Absalom despised his own father for being the weak-willed man that he was and for his failure to pursue justice for his sister Tamar. This is evident from the way that Absalom talks to the people of Israel in chapter 15, verse 4, where he laments David's kingship, saying, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give them justice. You see, based on this verse, it is clearly evident that Absalom views David as being unfit for the throne. And it stands to reason that the explanation for this is that Absalom resents David for not justly punishing Amnon for the rape of Tamar. As a result, Absalom takes justice into his own hands. First, by killing his brother, half-brother, Amnon, and then second, by trying to depose his father from the throne. But this actually wasn't true justice at all. Because just like the rape of Tamar, the murder of Amnon was also an act of sinful rebellion against God. And so was trying to depose God's anointed king. As a result, Absalom in this story is no, no better than his half-brother. Both men are unrepentant transgressors of God's holy law. Both men are the manifestation of the evil that God promised to raise up from David's own household. And it's through them we see how the sin of a father 
has a devastating impact on his children. Although David plays just a minor role in this chapter, it's clear that the chaos and the sin that unfolds are the consequences of his tragic fall from grace in chapter 11. Therefore, let his mistakes teach us a valuable lesson. Let us always remember that though we are forgiven in Christ, there will always be consequences for sin in this life. These consequences are unavoidable because we serve a just and holy God. So we should take warning or we should take heed of Paul's warning in Galatians chapter 6 where Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will also will from the, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, Paul is writing that letter to Christians. Therefore, his warning applies just as much to you and to me as it did to his original audience. Let us then never grow relaxed. Let us never grow lazy. Let us never grow entitled, thinking that just because we have God's forgiveness that we can live however we want. God will not be mocked. Let us therefore work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Always striving to do the good works with, that God himself has prepared for us, that we might walk in them. Let us sow to the Spirit that both we and our children may reap eternal life. That is our calling and the lesson that we learn from this chapter. And in closing, let us also pray. Let us pray for that day when a better king will come. David was a mere servant of God, who was an imperfect type of Christ who when he came the first time, came as a servant, who suffered the full weight of justice on our behalf by paying the penalty for sin on the cross. And one day, King Jesus will come again, but this time as a glorious, not as a servant, but as a glorious king, who will administer true justice once and for all. On that day, he will avenge his people by punishing the evildoers of this world and casting them into a lake of everlasting fire where there will be nothing but darkness, wailing, and the gnashing of teeth. And to those who have trusted and put our hope in his name, Jesus himself will bend down to wipe away every tear from your eye.
On that day, the people of God will dwell in his presence where death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor rape, nor, mor- no, nor murder, nor betrayal. For the former things will have passed away. On that day, there will only be the joy, the peace, and the comfort which surpasses all understanding. So then let us put our hope in that king. And until he comes, let us pray earnestly for his arrival. Will you pray with me? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that we are imperfect, flawed, and sinful human beings, fully deserving your wrath and displeasure. Lord, we are no better than the likes of Amnon or Absalom or David. We have all sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. But we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have the promise of redemption. And we praise you that in his name, we can be forgiven. And it's in his name, Lord, that we ask tonight that you would send your Holy Spirit down upon us to help us, Lord, to live holy and righteous and blameless lives before you. Help us to never grow weary of doing good. Help us never to take your grace for granted but give us a holy fear of you that we may strive to do your works which you have prepared beforehand. And Lord, we pray desperately for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, to come again. Lord, this world is a broken place. Your people are hurting. Your people are suffering. And we plead with you, come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring justice to the earth once again. Vindicate your people, O God, and may the name of Christ be exalted above every name. We pray these things in his strong name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.